Welcome to Autism One, a conversation of hope, brought to you by the Sensory Learning Center with host and mother of a recovering child with autism, Betsy Hicks. All comments, views, and opinions expressed are solely those of the hosts, guests, and callers. In the next hour, Betsy and her guests illuminate how right now there is more reason than ever for individuals with autism spectrum disorders and their families to have the best hope for the brightest future. Through education and conversation, there is hope. Here's your host, Betsy Hicks. Welcome to Autism One, a conversation of hope. I am your host, Betsy Hicks, and our show is about empowering and educating you on the subject of autism. I want to first thank our sponsor, the Sensory Learning Center, for making our show possible. In my experience in radio, never before have I held such a great playing deck as my guests today. Each of them is a hero of mine because their passion is about, and it was, it's their passion and their research. It's not for monetary gain. It's for answers. These are the answers to questions being asked throughout the world through the screams of our children and the anger and the fear of the parents. I welcome today... Dr. Vicki DeBold, she has served as a health policy analyst for the U.S. Congress, Michigan Health and Safety Coalition, and the Michigan State Commission on Patient Safety. Her doctoral degree is from University of Michigan School of Public Health and School of Nursing. Lynn Redwood, RN, MSN, is a nurse, nurse practitioner and is co-author of Autism, a Novel Form of Mercury Toxicity, and has tes- testified before for the Government Reform Committee on Mercury in Medicine, Are We Taking Unnecessary Risks? As a writer and researcher on autism and mercury toxicity, Ms. Redwood has published in Neurotoxicology, Medical Hypothesis, Molecular Psychiatry, Mothering Magazine, and Autism Asperger's Digest. She has also appeared on Good Morning America with Diane Sawyer and has been interviewed by U.S. News and World Report, Wired Magazine, and numerous other publications. Ms. Redwood is co-founder of the Coalition of Safe Minds, and her work is featured on the best-selling book, Evidence of Harm, by David Kirby. We also have J.B. Hanley, who is a co-founder of Generation Rescue, whose mission is to gather information on mercury toxicity, organize doctors towards treating children affected with ASD, sponsor research, and support legislation. And last but not least, we have Dan Hollenbeck, who received his Bachelor of Science degree in Electrical and Computer Engineering from the University of Wisconsin-Madison. He currently works in Pittsburgh as an Information Technology Manager for a large NIH-funded research organization. He is the founding member and director of Fighting Autism. Dan authored the Public Schools Autism Prevalence Report Series and is on the board of directors and the Research Committee for Safe Minds. Thank you to the four of you for joining me today. I... We have many things to talk about today, but the first piece we're going to be speaking about is Paul Shattuck's study um, in pediatrics, the contribution of diagnostic substitution to the growing administrative prevalence of autism in the U.S. special education. Dan, can you start by telling us, because you have such great background in this, uh, where you've you've done a lot of work in, in compiling graphs and charts and series um, in your 50 reports that are used by autism advocates and educators across the country. Through all of this research, what can you tell us about public schools' autism prevalence rate? Well, it, it's very clear that uh, from my research, the rates of autism are increasing. Uh, I primarily focus on the special education data set. However, from a bigger 
perspective, uh, it's important for the listeners to understand that since about 1970, there's been about 50-plus uh, peer-reviewed uh, research papers published on the autism prevalence, and they've used everything from administrative data sets through registry uh, data sets through popu- population-based studies, and uh, virtually all of the data uh, points to an upward trend. Uh, historically, back in the, uh, even as early as the late 1980s, autism was unheard of. It was in, in the area of perhaps one or two out of 10,000. So one or two out of 10,000. Today, the CDC admits it's one out of every 166. Mm-hmm. Uh, so clearly, uh, something has changed. So in this particular study, can you sum up what the study is, is saying? Yes, the author really comes to two uh, conclusions, the first of which is that diagnostic substitution can explain the rise in autism prevalence, and the second conclusion, therefore, is that we shouldn't use the special education stats to prove that there's an autism epidemic, Uh, and both those conclusions are suspect uh, as far as I would be concerned. Uh, Diagnostic Substitution really is a form of epidemic denial, and there's three types of epidemic denial, uh, and I'll just cover those quickly if you don't mind. Please. Uh, the first type is diagnostic oversight. That really means that we've missed these children in the past. Um, some people call it the hidden horde theory, uh, but in that particular type, uh, there's clearly two cases where the research groups went back and tried to find the older patients with autism uh, and they were not able to find them. So clearly there is no hidden hoard. There's nowhere near the, the number of adults with this disorder as there are children. Mm-hmm. The second type of, of epidemic denial is what's called diagnostic expansion. And that basically means that over time the definition of autism has expanded to include more and more children, uh, but that's not the case. Uh, the primarily change in the definition is the addition of Asperger's syndrome. Uh, but unfortunately, that only accounts for about 14 to 19%, nowhere near a high enough percentage to really say that the addition of Asperger's uh, patients has, has really caused an explosion of, what, of the number of cases that we see. Uh, and the third type is what the author basically is, is claiming, and that's called diagnostic substitution, which basically means that... Um, for every case that uh, is being called autistic today, uh, it was previously called something else. In his case, he's claiming that it's mental retardation. So the children today that are called, falling under the autism category were previously being uh, put under the uh, mental retardation category. Okay, very interesting. So with his report, and explain how this was brought into... Um, the Journal of Pediatrics, or how this was, and what's the the conflict of interest of that? Uh, I'm not that versed at the conflicts of interest, uh, but what I can comment on is that the media reports from this have have just been horrendous. Uh, And I would have to agree with the author when he he has openly said that he's very disheartened at how the media have portrayed this study uh, because really that the media is now claiming that there is no epidemic at all. And that wasn't uh, any of the claims uh, made by uh, the author. Um, My personal opinion of the paper is at best the paper is insignificant. And and at worst, it's an example of how the media can take an insignificant research paper 
and turn it into something that it's not. Um, from our analysis of his work, it, it, it's, it's clear that there's some major criticisms that can be leveled against his work, and, and we question his paper strictly based on that, putting the conflicts of interest aside until later. Um, the first one is that there's more convincing evidence. You know, there's 50-plus uh, peer-reviewed research uh, articles that have shown that the autism prevalence is increasing. And so we don't really even need the special education data to claim that there's an epidemic. Um, the second criticism we have against this paper is that it's unnecessarily complex and poorly documented with respect to the analytical methods. Um, the autism prevalence to study it doesn't need to be complicated, but the author goes out and sure tries to make it so. Right. Um, with his diagnostic substitution, he's claiming that for every de child that's decreased from mental retardation, it, when you put those, um, move them over to autism, you have a growing rate. But if you just simply graph the prevalence of autism and mental retardation, you find that it still is going up. And so his conclusions are not correct. They're just flat out, out wrong. Um, there's other criticism that we have of his work is that for whatever reason he chose to group children together. He, he decided to group children ages 3 to 11 together, uh, whereas the data is, is readily available for discrete ages. And if you uh, lump the children together, you really lose a lot of the trend information. Mm. And, and one of the other areas that I'm really concerned about is he even fails to factor in uh, the issue uh, of developmental delay. So if you're going to look at diagnostic substitution, you have to be looking at the Im impact of developmental delay. And the de developmental delay category was introduced in 1997, uh, and he failed to even to, to look at that. Uh, and if you're concerned about the autism epidemic, you, you absolutely have to be concerned about the, the even greater growth rate for developmental delay uh, number of cases in this country. It's just staggering. And when you add those two together, it's mind-boggling the number of children that are, that are being put on, you know, labeled as, as autistic or developmentally delayed in this country. That's very interesting. And, and because the developmental delay can include everything from sensory dysfunction to ADD to ADHD, Asperger's. Is, is that all under that category? I, I don't believe the ADD and ADHD are, fall under the developmental delay category. They're, those typically are placed under the other health impairment category. Uh, and with respect to the special education data, they're not included uh, in, in the autism category. Okay. Dan, we have a, a, about a minute left before we're going to be going towards break. Is there anything else that you would like to add about this study before um, we have Dr. Vicki DeBold's comment? Yeah, on this? One final uh, co comment on it. It, in, it. It's an area that we don't really even need the special education data to claim that there's an autism epidemic. Uh, however, the special education data does have value, and that's to confirm that the rates are going up. And, and we... I personally feel that, that we're not only in an epidemic, but we're in what I would describe as a pandemic. And a pandemic is really a wide uh, geographical area where you're experiencing an epidemic. And that's really the value of the special education data is that you can go to Hawaii, uh, New York, California, Texas, or Florida, or any state you pick, and the rates are going up. That's right. Thank you, Dan. I greatly appreciate you providing that information for us today. When we return from our break, we will have Dr. Vicki DeBold talking a little bit more about some of the conflict of interest of this study. Stay tuned. Don't go away. We'll be back with Autism One, a conversation of hope.
A fresh look at today's health. Voice America Health and Wellness. We had a wonderful experience in our trip to the Sensory Learning Institute, and the main issue to sum everything up is that we went there with a child who was out of control and hyper, who had severe sensory issues and autistic tendencies, and we brought home a child who was vastly different. We brought home a child who plays with me and talks to me and looks in my eyes and tells me he loves me. The goal and focus of the Sensory Learning Program is to enable the central nervous system to better process sensory information by simultaneously stimulating visual, auditory, and vestibular systems with light, sound, and motion. By challenging these three sensory systems to work together and adapt to multi-sensory input, this intervention often improves speech, perception, understanding, social interaction, coordinated movement, and the ability to learn. We invite all parents interested in sensory learning program for a child to complete the confidential assessment on our website at www.sensorylearning.com. To create a kind and gentle world, a change in thought patterns and beliefs, individually and collectively, is needed. Join Suze Casey, developer of Belief Repattering, and her guest as they explore questions and conversations that push the boundaries and engage with you in the process of being who we really are and creating what we really want in our lives. What Do You Want Instead invites you to join the conversation every Thursday at 10 a.m. Pacific Time, 1 p.m. Eastern, on the Voice America Health and Wellness Channel. What Do You Want Instead supports you in honoring and accepting yourself and making the decisions that create the lifestyle you desire and deserve. Hi, this is Mark Victor Hansen. You know me for Chicken Soup for the Soul, the One Minute Millionaire, and Cracking the Millionaire Code. And what I want you to know is that if you want to have rip-roaringly good health, listen to Health Crusades by my friend John Farley. Tune in to Health Crusades with John Farley every Thursday at 8 a.m. Pacific Standard Time, only on Voice America Health and Wellness. Your life, your health, your network. You're listening to Voice America Health and Wellness. Welcome back to Autism One, a conversation of hope with Betsy Hicks. If you have a question or comment, call us toll-free at 866-472-5792. Now back to the program, here's Betsy. Welcome back. Thank you. You don't want to miss the show. We have had a wonderful um, briefing by Dan Hollenbeck, who's explained to us what is happening in more information on the Paul Shattuck uh, study that was in uh, the Pediatric Journal, the contribution of diagnostic substitution to the growing administrative prevalence of autism in U.S. special education. Um, Dan's comments clearly show that the rise of autism is very much proven, and we are very excited to have this wonderful group of uh, researchers as well as um, nurse practitioners and those who are activists in this area. Joining us next, we have Dr. Vicki DeBold, who is going to help to explain some of the conflict of interest of this study. And interjecting, we're hoping Lynn Redwood will, will put in her thoughts, as well as J.B. Hanley, who's, who's on standby as well. Dan is still with us, so we're going to have a great conversation here. Uh, Vicki, can you explain some of the conflict of interest of this study? Well, um, first of all, I'd like to say uh, sort of right up front that um, it's no surprise to most people who have been following the autism epidemic debate that there are, you know, a good number of concerns about uh, links between um, autism and vaccines and uh, the role that the CDC 
uh, the Centers for Disease Control and the American Academy of Pediatrics have uh, played in terms of, you know, addressing these concerns. Um, and, you know, our, our issues as they relate to conflict of interest uh, stem from two broad areas. One deals with the author himself and the other deals with the journal that uh, published the study and that is the journal Pediatrics, which is the uh, official journal of the American Academy of Pediatrics. Um, for people who, um, in case there are listeners out there that don't know what conflict of interest is, I'd like to just take a moment to uh, to sort of define what that is so that we know what we're talking about here. Um, but a conflict of interest is defined as any situation in which an investigator has competing professional or personal interests. Um, a classic example of this is an investigator who does research on the effectiveness uh, on a medication, a vaccine per se, and is simultaneously a patent holder or who holds stock in the vaccine manufacturer. Um, this is an example of a clear financial conflict of interest, and there are other types of conflicts that are less obvious but nonetheless present not only scientific, ethical, and sometimes, but sometimes legal uh, issues. And what I'd like to say here is that even if the conflict of interest had no actual effect on the behavior of the investigator, uh, it can create an appearance of impropriety that will undermine the public's confidence and the ability of the person to act appropriately. And this is why there are uh, uh, requirements within the federal government and most universities that all conflicts of interest uh, be declared up front and be made known to the readers. In this case, um, pediatrics, like all journals, does have a policy that requires conflicts to be declared. And uh, in the article itself, there's a statement that says the author has indicated he has no financial relationships relative to this article to disclose. So Our concern stems from um, documents that are publicly available, uh, in particular Shaddock's CV and uh, public statements that were made uh, and are available on the Internet, on um, uh, emaxhealth.com for one. And, um, and, I, and I guess what I should do is just sort of identify some of those areas for you. Please. Um, Shaddock's uh, CV demonstrates that he has been working in the area of autism prevalence since 2001, and uh, here is a situation where you have an individual who is uh, attempting to establish a research career related to autism prevalence. So there, there is, you know, one aspect of interest um, which is, you know, relevant to all investigators trying to establish a career. Um, secondly, um, his CV demonstrates that he has received funding on at least uh, one occasion as a principal investigator and received funding from the CDC to conduct an autism-related uh, study. And um, in a second situation, uh, he notes in his CV that uh, he, received, he was instrumental in the University of Wisconsin receiving well over half a million dollars uh, to establish a public health surveillance program for uh, children with autism and other issues. Um, and lastly, he was, uh, his pre-doctoral fellowship was funded by Merck. So um, I just want to say up front that the receipt of CDC money and ties to vaccine manufacturers doesn't necessarily mean that something improper has occurred 
or that bias is present. Um, it, it does, however, uh, create a conflict which can influence integrity and objectivity. And for this reason, uh, investigators have an obligation to report such information to their publishers, and publishers have an obligation to relay that information to their readers. So in, in, in all of these particular conflicts, um, in not disclosing them, it still made its way into the Journal of Pediatrics. That's my biggest question. How, how does, wouldn't you expect the Journal of Pediatrics to be a lot stricter on checking out conflicts of interest? Well, you know, what we don't know is whether um, Dr. Shattuck actually informed the journal that, uh, you know, he had uh, had financial ties to the CDC or whether he didn't and whether pediatrics was aware of this and decided that it, it didn't need to be disclosed to readers or not. And obviously the pediatricians had much to gain from this study as well. Betsy, it's, it's uh, J.B. Hanley. I just Hi, I, I got to chime in here. Please. Um, pediatrics is a private organization that represents pediatricians, and whether they knew it or not, pediatricians pulled the trigger for the autism epidemic by giving the vaccines. Pediatrics is the same publication that published the CDC's analysis of the relationship between thimerosal and autism, where the lead author was already an employee of GlaxoSmithKline, and they failed to mention that. Pediatrics is the same publication that published the Danish studies by a Danish vaccine manufacturer and CDC employees without noting conflicts of interest. So the, the American Academy of Pediatrics is motivated to protect their base. You can understand that from a, a logic standpoint, um, as shameful as it feels to us as parents, and therefore I think over time they've shown they're, they're willing to publish things that support their base. So to me, it can't be trusted. And you know, I, I want to take a step back. Um, pediatrics, and this is what gets parents like me confused who aren't scientists, in March of 2005, they published a study by Craig Newshafer from um, Johns Hopkins University, um, who apparently doesn't have a relationship with the CDC, where he concluded that cohort, cohort curves, and I'm quoting him, suggest that autism prevalence has been increasing with time as evidenced by higher prevalences among younger birth cohorts. And he specifically notes that no concomitant decreases in categories of mental retardation or speech-language impairment were seen. So um, I think to Dan's earlier point, when you lay out all the studies that are out there, far more show an increase in prevalence than show, show no increase in prevalence. It's interesting that the media seems to jump more on the ones that show there's no autism epidemic. And I think, you know, beyond the science, which is critical, none of this ever passes the smell test for anybody who lives in a neighborhood or takes their child right. to school or hangs out in terms of what's actually going on. And I have to quote an amazing mom who wrote something that was, was, uh, was featured in, a, in an Age of Autism story um, in the past year. And here's what the mom said. If I hear one more reporter repeating the mantra that part of the autism increase is better diagnostics, I will simply go mad. Anyone who has seen even one child with autism knows that not one of these kids would ever go undiagnosed. We would have to believe that 10 or 20 years ago, a parent would not have demanded to know why their child had regressed after being normal would not have demanded to know why they suddenly couldn't relate to the outside world, would not have demanded to know why they persistently rocked, flapped their hands, walked on their toes, bit themselves, pulled out their own hair, and banged their heads to the point of serious damage, would not have asked why their child had hundreds of meltdowns every day and could not stand a change in routine, 
would not have questioned why their child would not make eye contact or screamed if they were touched or held, would not have questioned why certain textures, foods, sounds, colors set their children into wild tailspin for no apparent reason, would not have questioned why their child only ate three foods, but would chew on wood, sand, or fabrics, would not question why their child could not speak at two years old, or why he could speak and then suddenly stopped abruptly never to speak again. Parents, it would have to be believed, would not have questioned the litany of medical issues that their child with autism also faces. You would have to believe that schools and teachers also somehow missed all of, the, all of this, and these children managed school and just slipped through the cracks. To believe this, you have never seen even a mildly autistic child. No child with autism ever went undiagnosed. That doesn't pass a smell test. Yeah. And what the CDC is doing is they're hiding behind this kind of research that they partially fund when, in fact, they could be doing the analysis, the very, very simple analysis that would get to the bottom of this thing once and for all, which Carolyn Maloney recently introduced in a bill where you simply go out and you, you measure the neurodevelopmental outcomes of unvaccinated populations and you see what the rates of autism, ADD, ADHD are amongst kids who've never received vaccines. CDC has never done it. The IOM recommended they do it in 01, and they never will unless they're made to because they know what the answer is going to be. We, we have about a minute, a little over a minute till break. Is there anything else anybody would like to add about the study before we... Well, I, I mean, I just want to jump in here that uh, there's um, another reason that the conflict of interest issue has arisen was because of remarks that were quoted uh, and attributed to uh, Shattuck where he says, and this study emphasizes why it's so important to continue funding uh, the longitudinal study of prevalence in several states as funded by the CDC that began recently. What the listeners need to know is that the University of Wisconsin is one of the 11 states selected by the CDC for just such that national study, and uh, there are documents linking Shattuck to this very study. So what we have here is Shattuck using his own study findings to lobby for funding yet another study with which he's associated. And there is where uh, I think the, the whole issue about, you know, the smell test coming up and not passing the sniff test and, you know, parents being justifiably concerned, uh, you know, about the objectivity here. We have been talking with Dan Holenbeck, Lynn Redwood, Vicki DeBold, and J.B. Hanley. And when we come back, we are going to be talking about a letter that went to all members of Congress from the multiple national organizations that support safe and effective vaccines on the subject of opposition to efforts of, to restrict access to vaccines. Stay right with us. We'll be right back. Opinions, options, answers. Voice America Health & Wellness. We had a wonderful experience in our trip to the Sensory Learning Institute and the main issue to sum everything up is that we went there with a child who was out of control and hyper who had severe sensory issues and autistic tendencies and we brought home a child who was vastly different. We brought home a child who plays with me and talks to me and looks in my eyes and tells me he loves me. The goal and focus of the Sensory Learning Program is to enable the central nervous system to better process sensory information by simultaneously stimulating visual, auditory, and vestibular systems with light, sound, and motion. By challenging these three sensory systems to work together and adapt to multi-sensory input, this intervention often improves speech, perception, understanding, social interaction, coordinated movement, 
and the ability to learn. We invite all parents interested in sensory learning program for a child to complete the confidential assessment on our website at www.sensorylearning.com. The pressures to be thin or ideal go beyond the Hollywood headlines. In fact, those suffering from eating disorders in the U.S. number in the millions, and eating disorders such as anorexia nervosa, bulimia nervosa, and binge eating are more common than Alzheimer's disease. Eating disorders affect men, women, adolescents, as well as young children. On Understanding Eating Disorders, Dr. Tom Scales, an internist and psychiatrist, uncovers the causes and characteristics of various eating disorders and shares his expertise on current treatment approaches. Expert guests and personal stories from some who have recovered reveal the depth of emotional conflicts of these dangerously obsessive conditions and the resolutions that work. Tune in to Understanding Eating Disorders with Dr. Tom Scales every Wednesday at 2 p.m. Pacific, 5 p.m. Eastern on the Voice America Health and Wellness Channel. Understanding Eating Disorders, the cycle of eating disorders, can be broken. Opinions, options, answers. You're listening to Voice America Health and Wellness. Welcome back to Autism One, a conversation of hope with Betsy Hicks. If you have a question or comment, call us toll free at 866-472-5792. Now back to the program. Here's Betsy. Wow, is all I can say. This has been an amazing show, and if you have missed any part of it, I really recommend this Friday the show will be repeated on Voice America at 9 a.m. This is definitely something you want to hear in its entirety. We have been talking to Dan Holmbeck, Dr. Vicki DeBold, Lynn Redwood, and J.B. Hanley about the Paul Shattuck pediatrics story on um, basically autism prevalence rate and how the study is very flawed. We are now going to switch gears a little bit to another um, article that came out on April 3rd. This was uh, to all members of Congress. It was from very, a very large amount of medical um, organizations. And Lynn, can I ask you to summarize this particular uh, paper, or letter, I should say? Um, certainly, I would be glad to, Betsy. First, I want to say that the timing of this letter that went to all members of Congress was somewhat suspect. This went out on a Monday before a large conference that was being held in Washington, D.C., to the Seed Autism Now Conference, which had over a 1,000 parents in attendance. These parents, uh, many of them were attending the conference in advance to go to a rally and to go over on the Hill and talk to their uh, legislators regarding uh, different bills pending before Congress, uh, one being to limit and reduce and remove the amount of mercury from vaccines. So when this letter came out Monday, the week before, the, the timing was somewhat suspect. This letter was signed on by 22 organizations, but when you look at these organizations, what you find is that a majority of them are, are nothing but mouthpieces for the pharmaceutical industry, specifically the vaccine industry. The lead organization that signed this letter was the Ambulatory Pediatric Association. And when you go to their website, you find out that they only have 2,000 members. Uh, other people who signed onto this, Every Child by Two, the Immunization Action Coalition. So just the people that are signing on to this are, are somewhat suspect. The subject or the title of the letter is Opposition to Efforts to Restrict Access to Vaccines. 
Now, now that's somewhat misleading. No one would want to restrict uh, access to vaccines. What, what we're actually asking for is that vaccines not contain a known neurotoxin, mercury. And in this letter, they point out um, six items uh, which basically say we do not support current legislation or state legislation that would limit or prohibit the use of mercury in vaccines. And um, every item here is either just a half-truth or completely false. And I would be glad to, to go through and sort of uh, summarize some of the things that they've said here that are, that are completely incorrect. Please do, because this is, this is important that people have a gist of what this article is about, the story is about. Well, the first item, Betsy, that they include, they say that there is no research that uh, is documented scientific evidence that ethyl mercury in the form of thimerosal in the doses administered in vaccines causes any health risk. Now, now that is just patently false. If anyone goes online and does a PubMed search, just within the last two or three years, six articles are, will pop up that document that the levels of mercury that are found in vaccines that were administered to American children are known to cause neurological damage. They're known to result in damage to the immune system, damage to the DNA in our bodies, methylation pathways, and that they result in accumulation of inorganic mercury in the brains of primates that were administered the, the same amount of mercury that children got in vaccines. And What's so important about these studies, and this particular study I'm mentioning was funded by NIH, is that inorganic mercury becomes trapped mercury. It doesn't have a way to exit the brain, and it results in neuroinflammation. And this is exactly what we have recently found in the brains of children suffering with autism. So they're, they're just not telling the truth here. They're saying that uh, this could result in vaccine shortages, but what they fail to mention is that there are other preservatives approved by FDA, like 2-phenoxyethanol, that could be used in place of thimerosal. So it would not result in any vaccine shortages. The other thing uh, that they fail to mention is that should there be uh, a pandemic flu situation, the Secretary of Health and Human Services right now has the authority to uh, go above any of these state bans and have thimerosal reintroduced back into vaccines. So that's really just completely uh, a moot point. Um, a couple of the other things. Sorry, uh, that, no, go ahead, J.B. Hey, Lynn, I, I just wanted to add one thing. If you go to immunize.org, immunize.org, that's the Immunization Action Coalition that sponsored the memo. Mm -hmm. If you scroll down about midway through the page, you'll see a link for their advisory board. If you click on the advisory board and you start reading who their liaisons are from all their partner organizations, Bill Atkinson, CDC, Stephen Kochi, CDC, God help us, Paul Offit. I mean, this is a, this is a vaccine um, advocacy organization funded by the CDC. Um, as the L.A. Times reported, um, the CDC is probably breaking a law here. They're funding this organization that spends their time lobbying um, in states to change laws. You know, government agencies can't lobby. The CDC can't lobby to change laws in states. Um, and further, just to build on Lynn's point around whether or not ethyl mercury causes damage, I'm just going to cite two things really quickly. First of all, the 2004 um, Institute of Medicine report is roundly used to say that thimerosal in vaccines is safe. Um, but from the putchildrenfirst.org website, we have an email from the chairman of the 2004 IOM committee, and she states, and I quote, 
The committee accepts that under certain conditions, infections and in heavy metals, including thimerosal, can injure the nervous system. Injure the nervous system, okay? That's from the head of the committee. It can injure the nervous system. And the CDC, in their own study in pediatrics in 03, despite doing their darndest to, um, to get the data to say that uh, thimerosal doesn't cause any problems with children, in their own results, and I'm reading it from the report, in phase one at HMOA, a cumulative exposure, and this is of thimerosal, at three months resulted in a significant positive association with ticks. At HMOB, increased risks of language delay were found for cumulative exposure at three months. So if you want to tell me that the CDC thinks it's okay to injure the nervous system, to cause ticks, and to cause language delay, which they've all proven thimerosal does by keeping it in vaccines, that's their standard for what safety is. What, what is the deal with not using a substitute? What, explain to me why, even if there's a shadow of a doubt that mercury may be toxic um, to them, wh- why, what's the reason for keeping what they're doing? Here's a, that's a great question. Okay, 2001 IOM. Here's the recommendation from the Institute of Medicine. The committee recommends research to identify a safe, effective, an inexpensive alternative type of thimerosal for countries that decide they need to switch. You're telling me that in 70 years, with all that we've gained in, in medicine, technology, etc., we can't find a safer antibacterial for a multi-dose vaccine vial than the second most toxic substance on earth? It's preposterous, and the reason that they're avoiding doing it is by changing and by taking it out, the prevalence rates will drop, the liability will be enormous, and better to keep it in than to take it out and take that risk. And, and the other thing, Betsy, is they could easily go to single-dose vials, right. which, which we have here. Now, one of the things they say in this letter is that that leads to increased costs for vaccines. Well, the difference between a single-dose vial and a multi-dose vial, according to the manufacturers, is about $3.30, which is the price of a Happy Meal. Now, they're saying, oh, well, these Medicare and federal programs couldn't afford that. I want to point out that just a few years ago, they approved to the early infant schedule a vaccine given three times the first six months of life that cost $65 a dose. So that increased every vaccine, the the price for vaccines in our country for every child, $190 that was picked up by the Vaccine for Children's Program. So they can do that, but they're not willing to go up $3.30 to give a pregnant woman and an infant a vaccine that doesn't contain a known neurotoxin that crosses the blood-brain barrier and accumulates in the brain, I mean, it's just completely illogical. And and I wonder if parents, I I know as a parent myself, I picked out the safest car to drive, the best car seat, and parents aren't even being told that there's mercury in these vaccines. Give a parent a choice. You know, we have vaccine A here that doesn't contain mercury, but vaccine B does. Now, you're going to have to pay $3.30 more for this one. Which do you want? And let the parent, let's, let the American public decide. The manufacturers are already on the record saying that they can make enough flu vaccine without thimerosal to meet the needs for every pregnant woman and child in this country, but there is no mandate in place for them to do it. But so they're more than willing to do right. it. It's going to be more money for them. But we need our professional agencies, right. like the American Academy of Pediatrics and the CDC, to step forward and make that recommendation for our children. There's still that immense trust that the American public has for their doctors that and their government 
that says they would never do anything to harm us. And, and until that is swayed, nothing will change. But letters such as this, what would, tell me, tell me, going back to the letter, um, to Congress, what did they hope to gain? Obviously, with the march that was happening in Washington, they want to dismiss these parents as just over-concerned um, on, you know, on some strange mission, mission type piece. But what is it their main hope in this letter to be able to accomplish? Um, you know, Betsy, I, I'm really sort of awestruck by this letter that anybody could promote a known neurotoxin in vaccines. And, um, you know, we have the 2001 Institute of Medicine report, which called on the uh, professional associations and the academies to state a preference for thimerosal-free vaccines for infants and pregnant pregnant women and children, and, and that was never done. So. For the life of me, I, I can't understand why anyone would support the use of a known neurotoxin in a vaccine unless, you know, it makes us very suspect, as JB said, that they know that, that there's a problem here. And if they remove thimerosal completely and we see this epidemic go away, like we're already starting to see in California, it's going to be the big epi study that nobody ever wanted done. Yeah, I mean, Betsy, to, to build on that point, um, the Geyers came out with a study in the Journal of American Physicians and Surgeons, spring 2006, saying, quote, the results indicate that the trends in newly diagnosed neurodevelopmental disorders correspond directly with the expansion and subsequent contraction of the cumulative mercury dose to which children were exposed from thimerosal-containing vaccines. Mm. They, they couldn't be any more explicit in what they're saying. They're saying the rates are going down as thimerosal has been removed. And I, I, never, I never believe when people first raised the idea that CDC would actively be keeping thimerosal in vaccines to, to keep the rates from dropping too drastically. It, 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 I thought that was just too sick and twisted for as, as little as I trusted the CDC that was going over the line. But the longer it takes with all the evidence, the scientific evidence, everybody at CDC knows that mercury is a known neurotoxin. The head of the IOM committee is talking about how it injures the nervous system. Their own reports show that it causes ticks and language delays. What other product on the planet would the AAP and the CDC support if they know it caused, it could injure the nervous system and cause ticks and language delays in children? Right. Uh, we did invite Paul Offit for the show, just so you know, JP. Um, he declined. Um, but Hard to we, did, we did actually <laughs> invite him. When we come back, more on all of these topics with the wonderful Lynn Redwood, Dr. Vicki DeVold, J.B. Hanley, and Dan Hollenbeck. Stay tuned. We appreciate you listening. Hang on. Learn more. Live better. Voice America Health and Wellness. We had a wonderful experience in our trip to the Sensory Learning Institute, and the main issue to sum everything up is that we went there with a child who was out of control and hyper, who had severe sensory issues and autistic tendencies, and we brought home a child who was vastly different. We brought home a child 
who plays with me and talks to me and looks in my eyes and tells me he loves me. The goal and focus of the sensory learning program is to enable the central nervous system to better process sensory information by simultaneously stimulating visual, auditory, and vestibular systems with light, sound, and motion. By challenging these three sensory systems to work together and adapt to multi-sensory input, this intervention often improves speech, perception, understanding, social interaction, coordinated movement, and the ability to learn. We invite all parents interested in sensory learning program for a child to complete the confidential assessment on our website at www.sensorylearning.com. The Men's Health and Lifestyle Show with Dr. Philip Worthman explores in-depth topics of concern to men of all ages regarding their health and lifestyle in an informative and provocative way. This show is the user's manual for men, a detailed and unedited guide to male physiology. Dr. Worthman, a recognized authority in men's health and male fertility, and his expert guests stimulate informative discussions and debates in a serious yet entertaining way, from explaining how or why the male body works as it does, to dispelling myths and misconceptions about men's health and sexuality. Dr. Worthman covers and uncovers it all. The Men's Health and Lifestyle Show broadcasts each Tuesday at 1 p.m. Pacific, 4 p.m. Eastern on the Voice America Health and Wellness Channel. The Men's Health and Lifestyle Show, teaching men what they need to know to live healthy, happy, and productive lives. Opinions, options, answers. You're listening to Voice America Health and Wellness. Welcome back to Autism One, a conversation of hope with Betsy Hicks. If you have a question or comment, call us toll-free at 866-472-5792. Now back to the program, here's Betsy. What a wonderful show this is. We have four fabulous people that have joined us. We have Dan Hollenbeck, a wonderful researcher. We have Dr. Vicki DeBold. We have Lynn Redwood, and we have uh, J.B. Handley of uh, Generation Rescue. And we are really hitting a lot of different issues today regarding vaccines. And specifically, right now we're speaking about the letter that's called Opposition to Efforts to Restrict Access to Vaccines that went out to members of Congress from quite a few 20-plus organizations that um, are questionable within themselves. And we're discussing this particular letter. Um, Lynn, can we go back to this? Uh, We we got a little diverted, and I'd like to go back to the letter, some of the the misleadings of the letter, if we could go back to that. Well, another point that they make in the letter, Betsy, is that going with thimerosal-free vaccines is going to add more complexity to the present vaccine delivery system, and they're saying that it makes it difficult for healthcare providers to stay current with the ever-changing nature of immunizations. Mm-hmm. And, and to me, that's just just crazy. Being a healthcare provider myself, this makes it much more simple. Right now, there's five different flu vaccines out there, and these healthcare provi- providers are being bombarded with calls from people wanting to know if the vaccines they have contain mercury or not. So once they go to a formula that has no mercury, it's going to be a no-brainer. Everybody gets a vaccine that doesn't have mercury, and they're not going to be fielding these calls from everyone wanting to know if the vaccines they have contain mercury or don't contain mercury. So it's going to make it a lot easier. And I just want to mention, one of the things we hear is that, oh, the amount of mercury in a vaccine is is minuscule. But what I want to point out is that a, a vial of vaccine contains 500 parts per billion of mercury. And to put this in perspective, 
any type of liquid waste that exceeds just 200 parts per billion mercury has to be disposed of in a special hazardous waste landfill. And our drinking water can't exceed two parts per billion. So unused flu vaccine can't just be thrown in the garbage. It has to go to a hazardous waste landfill. Now tell me, what American would want something injected into them that's classified as a hazardous waste? I mean, it, it just... It, it makes no sense. To yeah, and Linda, to cap it off, you're saying 250 times what's safe for water is what's in a vaccine. Right. And these groups are advocating that that's okay for infants. Well, I, actually, this is Vicki. Um, did you say 500 parts per billion? I think it's 50,000 parts per billion is the concentration that's in the vaccines. Right. I, I'm sorry, what was said? It, it's 50 parts per billion. That is the concentration. And so I just, you know, I think they need to come clean with the American public on this, and um, it's something they should have done back in 1999. It's also very concerning that they have now targeted pregnant women because we know right now one out of every six pregnant women is already uh, known to have levels of mercury in their body that could cause damage to their unborn children. So on top of this, already high level of environmental mercury, we're adding even more, and we're adding it during a more vulnerable period of time during the pregnancy. And this was something that, that is a brand-new recommendation that just came out a few years ago. And the research on this, when you look at the large-scale studies, there was one done that looked at five seasons over five, flu seasons over five years, and they found absolutely no difference in the rate of influenza or influenza-like illnesses and it was over in over like 50,000 women who received flu vaccine compared to ones who did not. So there really isn't any science behind the recommendation to administer flu vaccine to pregnant women. Hey, Betsy, I think this summarizes it for me. Mm-hmm. Um, after the LA Times article came out about a week ago that talked about how the CDC and the AAP are actively lobbying against bills to ban thimerosal, um, they mentioned in the article that the immunization Action Coalition has their primary funding source from CDC. So I wrote Diane, who runs the Immunization Action Coalition, uh, an email on April 11th. She hasn't written back yet, but here's what I said. Hi, Diane. It was a pleasure to read in the LA Times that you are actually a front for the CDC. You are spending your time advocating to inject a potent neurotoxin in tiny babies. As I said before, because I wrote it one other time, and I think you need now more than ever, may God have mercy on your soul. So That's telling her. That's excellent, Davey. Well, I think, uh, I think what's been discussed here is a terrific example of why any kind of relationship that any author and any journal has with the CDC needs to be disclosed to the readers. Most definitely. There's a lot going on here. But they're not even disclosing, you know, true evidence, let alone their conflict of interest. So where is that going to change? What's going to have to happen to make this change? Yeah, that's a, that's a good question. Well, I, I, <laughs> I think that vaccine safety needs to be removed from the CDC. I think that to have a government organization of bureaucrats who are in charge of administering vaccines and monitoring their safety is an inherent conflict of interest, and it's unrealistic for us to expect um, that people are going to tell on themselves and indict themselves. It just doesn't happen. History shows that. And, you know, whether it's asbestos or tobacco or now the thimerosal autism epidemic, um, it's going to take outside forces, pull the safety monitoring out of CDC, and then be- begin the Senate investigation into this that needs to happen. 
Senator Enzi needs to step up to the plate and make it happen. It's in his power to do so, and he has all the information. Oh, absolutely. I mean, this is clearly a situation of the fox watching the hen house. Dan, what do you, you're, you've been in the silence for a little bit, and you gave us such great information at the beginning. What do you feel needs to happen to make, to make the biggest changes? It, it all needs to go back to uh, vaccine safety, in particular, uh, looking at a study where we, we use as the controls an unvaccinated population. Amen. And, and until that is done, I mean, we can split hairs over autism prevalence. Uh, we can split hairs over um, thimerosal or, you know, or, or other vaccine components, uh, you know, or the combinations of them or just the sure number of them. We need to use as the de facto standard an unvaccinated population. And until we do that, the CDC will have no credibility. Right. Yeah, and, and IOM recommended that CDC do that in 2001, and they haven't. We all know why they haven't, but they need to do it. Lynn, any closing comments from yourself? Well, uh, first I want to thank you, Betsy, for putting together this program. I think it is so important for the American public to know um, what is going on with recommendations for vaccines. Um, I know, as JB said earlier, you know, we, we trust, we inherently trust our health care providers. And, you know, I know when I took my son in to get his vaccines, I had researched, you know, everything else, but I, I didn't research vaccines for my son and I didn't know that a, I thought a DPT vaccine was a DPT vaccine was a DPT vaccine. I didn't know that there were numerous manufacturers. Some had aluminum, some had mercury. Uh, parents need to be informed consumers for themselves and, and for their infants on this issue. I recommend that every parent, be, while they're pregnant, go in and talk to their pediatrician and their obstetrician about vaccines before those decisions are made because the first vaccine they're want, going to want to administer to an infant is in the hospital uh, right after birth. So parents need to know what the recommendations are. They need to look at the studies in terms of safety and efficacy for these vaccines, and they need to be informed consumers uh, for their children. So that would be my one plea is for everybody to to uh, to research this issue thoroughly and um, and not rely uh, on the, the information that they're receiving from institutions like the CDC who have obvious conflicts of interest. You know, another thing that needs to be pointed out is CDC also uh, is actively involved in not just promoting vaccines, doing vaccine safety, but they also have um, working relationships within pharmacy where pharmacy supports different uh, positions within the CDC. So, again, that, that whole issue in terms of separating vaccine safety out away from CDC has to happen before we can be assured that vaccines uh, are really safe as they're proposed to be. Very important. Vicki, anything you'd like to close with? Well, I think just, uh, you know, swinging this back around to the Shattuck study that we started with, uh, I think the fact of the matter is that any investigator who uh, publishes an article that uh, casts doubt on the existence of a true epidemic in autism and has, you know, acknowledged ties to the CDC that have not been disclosed are going to be regarded as suspect by a portion of the readers that, you know, have concerns about the autism CDC vaccine nexus. And uh, we just need to be open as candid and as we can possibly be. Uh, so that the science doesn't appear to be politically motivated. Thank you very much to all of you. I greatly appreciate you being on our show. Any comments, you can email me at voiceamerica at autism1, that's O-N-E, dot org. 
Thank you very much for joining us. Bye-bye. The Sensory Learning Center would like to thank you for listening to Autism One, a conversation of hope. To contact Betsy or get more information, visit autismone.org. Tune in next Tuesday for another hour of education and conversation.